I'm Aaron Reynolds, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm 5 on the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. Last week, I was at the cottage, and I realized I had to pay back a friend. Using my phone, it only took a few seconds. Canadians are always on the move, and with Interact eTransfer, it's easy for us to access our money. Interact eTransfer enables consumers and businesses to send, receive, and request money securely, anytime and anywhere. Visit interact.ca to learn more. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know more about the rules surrounding the Romulan neutral zone than I do about the rules of crossing the Canadian border. And that's kind of a problem, and that's why I'm inviting really intelligent people into the studio to explain things to me like I'm five. Canadian immigration is a hot topic in the news these days. And I have friends who have been through the long process to become Canadian citizens, but I realized I don't know what they went through, what they did, what steps they took. All I know is that it took a long time. And so to help me out with that, I have the former Director General of Citizenship and Multiculturalism, Andrew Griffith, in studio with me today. Thank you so much for coming today. Thanks for the invitation. My pleasure. I wanted to ask... Uh, two really basic questions just to sort of to get us off the ground here. And one of them is um, uh, basic but big questions. What are the ways that someone can come to Canada uh, and uh, how has that changed over time? What, what order should we, should we talk about that in? Oh, well, we'll start with the first one just for okay. sake of yeah. Uh, yeah. convenience. Okay, so the way one can come to Canada... Mm-hmm. There are different levels. So, the, you know, one can come to Canada as a, just a visitor, as a right. tourist and everything yep. like that. Um, one, but what is more interesting is how does one come to Canada as an immigrant? Right. And how does that work and how has that obviously changed over time? And within that immigrant category, there's the immigrant category who is somebody who's going to settle here. Right. And then you also have the category of people who come on a temporary basis to do work or meet gaps in the labor market. Right. Um, and so if we focus on the latter two, mm-hmm. the immigrant and the temporary foreign worker, so the, the, how does an immigrant come here? Well, they have to apply. Um, and over the years, the process for application has changed. Yeah. Um, the criteria for coming has changed. But it's always been largely based on what are the Canadian interests Involved. What is best for Canada? Okay. So, the largest percentage over history, if you look at the long, is always for people who are going to contribute to the economy. Okay. Um, so, you know, if you look at the uh, early years of Canada, it was mainly agriculture. You look at the settlement of the West. There was a real push to bring immigrants, uh, many from Eastern Europe, to settle the West again to. You know, a established Canada as a as a country across the U.S. border, right, right, um, right. and settle uh, the prairies, which worked largely. And then, sort of, if you look at the post-war period, it shifted more towards manufacturing and industry. And if you look at the current period, it served more in terms of higher skilled labor, uh, again for immigrants. And it's also to address uh, the demographic challenges of an aging population. Uh, so that's really, you know, the, in a macro sense on the immigrant side. On the other side, the temporary uh, residents. Um, so we all have heard about sort of the agricultural workers that come during the Canadian mm-hmm. summers to pick our fruit and vegetables and the like. Um, so that's one group. But again, over the years, 
that's evolved. So we now not only have sort of what would be called lower-skilled temporary foreign workers, we also have higher-skilled. So that's people like uh, intracorporate transferees, uh, people coming under services uh, agreements like NAFTA and uh, the WTO services agreement. Um, it's uh, dependents who are coming under those categories okay. who then get employment rates because they're coming with their spouse and they need they need to earn something. And then, of course, we also have under temporary residents, we also have international students. So, you know, I think the thing to understand is that the fundamentals of Canadian immigration policy, you know, we select people in the belief that they can contribute to the Canadian economy. Right. We then, of course, and we'll get into that when we talk about immigration categories, we help family members come as well. And we have a, a portion that is also for humanitarian considerations and refugees. Okay. And I actually wanted to ask about, um, uh, because you were talking about uh, contributions, how do we evaluate those contributions? Like what, what – because uh, I know that has changed over time because we've had different needs over time. Well, well, well essentially, you know, you've got a bunch of policy wonks hey, that yeah, are looking yeah. at the evidence and everything like that that are trying to figure that. You have an extensive consultation process. And again – uh, immigration is a shared jurisdiction okay. between the federal government and the provinces. So there's a lot of con- consultation with the provinces okay. in terms of uh, their needs. A province could say, we need more doctors. Well, yeah, or, or, or whatever. Or And there's a whole program that actually allows the provinces to have a portion. They can select themselves based on their labor market oh, interesting. needs. Okay. Yeah, so we have actually sort of addressed that kind of in a very meaningful uh, way. Um, and the current process for selecting immigrants is basically a revised version of the point system that was developed in the 60s. That okay. basically uh, you know, tried to establish um, objective criteria in terms of what policymakers thought would be factors of successful integration and successful contribution to the economy. It's now it's a, the actual criteria have evolved and changed over the sure. years yeah. to try and match the labor market needs, but the fundamental process is that we select people uh, based upon their ability to contribute, and then of course the other categories, refugees and family class, are done under slightly different criteria. Okay, so should we talk about those? Should we talk about uh, refugees? Sure. Yeah, I mean, well, it's a hot topic, and it'll be the hot topic I think for some time to come. Unfortunately, Absolutely. yeah. Yeah, and so how does how does the 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 refugee process work? Okay, well, there are sort of three main categories of uh, refugees. Um, so the ones that we manage mm-hmm. in, in the in the proper sense, there are two categories of those. So the ones that are privately sponsored. So that's a you know a family member or a group of people decide to sponsor a refugee or a refugee family. Um, and they're really responsible for the first year's costs and everything like that. And that was very successful under the when we accepted a lot of Vietnamese uh, boat people. And it was obviously the, the model that was used a lot in terms of the Syrian refugees. Okay. And those groups who come to those programs, they tend to do slightly better in the short term because they've got a sponsoring Right. Group yeah. That is helping them through all the various things about trying to learn about Canada. Right. Um, so that's one group. Then we have probably the most vulnerable group, and those are the government sponsored ones. 
And those are selected basically by UNHCR, um, and then we sort of, you know, they give us some names, and then we do, we decide among them. And UNHCR is? Is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Okay. Sorry for the jargon. No, that's all right. That's good. <laughs> um, and so typically the integration process is a bit slower with them because mm-hmm. you're dealing with more vulnerable groups, and they don't have the same kind of support that uh, sort of – a family or a, or an organization can provide them. Okay, and and those groups are largely non-controversial. Okay, um, you know that's it's meeting our humanitarian obligations. That's part of who we think we are as a country. Where the uh, controversy emerges, the third category, which is you know in the jargon is called the in Canada. Uh, so they're people who either arrive at the airport. And right. file a refugee claim, okay. or as the you know we've seen over the past couple of years, following the election of Trump, is we have a lot of people walking across the border at La Col, Quebec, right, right? at right. Roxham Road, um, and those are the people you can't really plan for, right? Because um, yes, it's illegal to cross the border at a non-official border crossing, but of course once you're in. Um, you are legally allowed to file a refugee claim. So, right. so the illegal, irregular distinction is, almost, is meaningless in terms of law and everything like right, that. Right, but, right. but that's where the controversy comes out because it's sort of, it really is sort of, it, you can't really manage that flow. You can try and predict it, and the government is trying to sort of to have various techniques to reduce the amount and everything like that. But it's basically people crossing the border, and uh, they're. You know, they, we can talk a bit later in terms of policy solutions and policy mm-hmm. approaches, but that's where the focus is. That's where you see the opposition sort of making the most and, and arguing that the government isn't managing that group, uh, unlike the other groups which they are managing. Right. Um, I would love to uh, to go back to the managed part of it for a second. Talk about some of the nuts and bolts of of both immigrants and refugees coming to Canada. Um, what does it look like to like? Is there an application process? There must be because we have to evaluate the person who's coming. And so, like, how does it? It's government, of course. There's an application yeah. <laughs> process. Like, it's, it's a, a long form. Or it's a, there are forms to fill out. Okay. There's, a, you know, there are medical. You have to get a medical attestation right. in terms of your 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 health. Um, there are security checks. It's a, there's a whole complex process that gets triggered by uh, the application to immigrate. Okay. And, of course, now how the point system is being administered is there's actually basically, um, by, I think it's by every two weeks they do a draw and they rank the candidates. Oh, okay. You know, and then there's a scoring system. And so it's actually resulted in a quicker process. Okay. Um, uh, so that's the, being the major change that was introduced, I think, in 2015. Um, to sort of help s- speed up the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course... Uh, like, I guess that makes sense because if you're trying to evaluate like a thousand people versus a thousand other people versus evaluating a much smaller group, is, yeah, that, well, is that kind well, of the well, idea? Yeah, of I, think, yeah. I think that's the logic and the point system, again, that you know, the, the, the philosophy behind that dates 50 years or more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a way to try and remove some of the subjectivity from decision making. Okay. And now, of course, you know, given just the large numbers involved, 
that's really the only way you can actually do it, just from a operational point of view. Right, right. Because otherwise, you know, it would take a tremendous amount of you know person that's, power that's just right, to yeah. look through and all of it. Okay, and so that is that something that happens then in the in the home country of wherever this person is coming from? Well, they make the application in in the home country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's then processed. Uh, well. I think it used to be in Fagerville, but I think now it's been it's been moved elsewhere. But it, it, but it, there's a processing center that looks at all the applications um, and does the ranking and everything like that. So okay, and then for uh, refugee claimants that are uh, through that uh, UNHCR, that's is that process then managed entirely by the UN, or is that something that we're a part of? It's everything is always managed by us. Okay, but with the Refugees that come from UNHCR, from the UN, um, they give us names, and then Canada evaluates the government them then evaluates that. them and, and, and says yes, no, or figures out how, what are, which are the best ones. And so in that process, the person is is starting paperwork or whatever, but with the UN. That's right, right. yeah. And then yeah. we become involved. Yeah. Okay, okay. What then does the process look like for someone who uh, – comes to Canada without having started this process and, you know, uh, either uh, arrives at an airport or crosses the border legally or illegally. That's actually, let's let's talk about that for a second. What, where is it, is it only legal to cross the border into Canada at certain places? Formally speaking, only at an official border crossing. Okay. So you, you, you come across, you know, at, at Windsor, that's okay. You come across at... Uh, at Pearson, that's okay. Right. Um, but if you just walk across the border, like through a forest, walk some road. A, yeah. Okay. Um, strictly speaking, that's illegal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you took a boat across and didn't stop yeah, at a port, right. just took like to a private dock or yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or whatever. Okay. Okay. Um, interesting. But once you get into Canada, yeah, it's basically the same process applies. Whether you've arrived uh, at an official border crossing or you've arrived, you know, elsewhere, you still have to serve, you know. You say, say, I'm here. They they verify your identity. They may fingerprint you. They may do a health inspection, you know, all those kinds of things. So the process actually, once you're in Canada, is actually pretty well identical. Okay. But it still gives the impression that some people are following the rules. And others are right, not, are, not are sort of essentially jumping the queue. Right. And that does make sense because then they didn't participate in the lottery and so on and so on. They physically yeah. got here. Because I'm just thinking about, you were talking about uh, there was more success in the short term at least uh, from people who came as uh, refugees with uh, sponsorship because they had you know su- a support system. So what does the support system look like for someone who has come, uh, who has arrived in Canada and made that claim here? Well, I, I mean, I think like some of the support systems in place actually apply to all categories okay. of immigrants. So, you know, the government spends a fair amount of money in terms of language training okay. for for newly arrived immigrants, and that they apply to anybody who arrives, whatever you know, as long as it depends on their immigration status. But basically, whether you're economic or a refugee or a family member, you're entitled to language training. Uh, the government has also sort of increasingly spent. Uh, more effort in terms of pre-arrival information, in terms of uh, how to integrate into Canada, how to get a job and everything like that. Okay. So they've m- done more work on that, but the bulk of the funding really goes to language training. Okay. And, you know, language is such a fundamental part of integration that it uh, probably makes sense to focus there. Yeah. But again, you know, like the economic class immigrants, 
you know, they do get points if they know English or French. Right. So quite often the language training may be more needed for their spouses or family members to right. help them sort of in the integration journey. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about family members. How does how does that work? So the family class we're talking yes. about. So this is essentially you've immigrated to Canada, you've been here for a certain number of years. You may or may not be a citizen, but you're a permanent resident. Got it. So you can sponsor a family member, um, and uh, you know the largest one. You know the, the largest categories I think are spouses. So mm-hmm. you know you've come here. Um, uh, the woman you love, or the, the, the woman your family thinks would be good for you, it's, and it's usually that way. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, wants to come to Canada, so an application is made, and there have to be certain you know funding guarantees that uh, usually it's the first year costs uh, will be absorbed, and they have to sort of make sure that they're not just marriages of convenience in terms right. of uh, trying to get access to Canada. Um, so sort of the I think the second largest group is probably uh, parents and grandparents. So okay. you you know you've been here a while, you've established a family, your parents are getting older, you want to look after them, um, and you may also need people to look after your kids, and so who better than the parents yeah. or grandparents? Yeah. It's like a form of child care. Absolutely. Um, and that's a larger group, and that's, a, that's an area that, a group that tends to be more controversial from a policy perspective, because it's one thing if you're having immigration of young people to meet the demographic challenges. Right. But if you're allowing people of that age to do that, well, the burdens on the health care system will be greater and everything like right. that. But that sort of goes against, sort of, well, it's a natural thing to want your parents to be close to you. Right. Um, and so right. you have to balance those yeah, competing I, objectives. I can sort of see that because that's someone who, if they were coming on the points system, would not then be scoring very high in terms of... No, like, they don't have to go through that system. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, different, exactly. It's a different thing. Yeah. When it comes to becoming a permanent resident, yeah. how does that happen? Well, if you were accepted as an immigrant, yep. you're a permanent resident. You, okay. get a per, you get a permanent residency card, which is valid for five years, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the question is whether, you, and that can be renewed, mm-hmm. um, or after that period, you know, after th- three years in Canada, you can apply for citizenship. That's the other. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask. So yeah. uh, you can become a permanent resident, uh, which is a five-year, and then it's a thing you, you renew. And then... The process of becoming a citizen. So you're a permanent resident. You've been here at least three years. What else goes into citizenship? The basic requirement is that residency requirement, and it's defined as being physically present okay. in yeah. Canada. At one point in time, a legal, resi- legal residency was sufficient. Right. You could have right, a post right. office box, and it would, but fortunately that got changed. Right. I'm just uh, thinking about I'm thinking about you know the the people who live in the Cayman Islands for tax purposes, but actually spend their year in another country. Or yeah. that's right, yeah, it's that kind of thing. Um, the other two major requirements are first of all basic proficiency in either English or French. Okay. And there's a knowledge test. So there's a study guide, Discover Canada, that people are expected to read and understand and then be able to answer uh, 20 questions and and get, I think, 75% of them right. Okay. So there's those two elements. And the other thing to keep in mind on that is the knowledge and language requirements are only required for, for people aged 18 to 54, Okay. And uh, the previous government actually tried to ex- extend that, um, yeah. but 
the current government just reversed those changes. And okay. there were valid arguments on both, uh, bo- right, both right, sides. Right, right. But, yeah. I would expect that a grandparent would have a harder time learning a new language than someone in their 20s. That's right, yes. Yeah. 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 But, but whether you know, the cutoff should be 54 or 64, there's not too much of a difference between right. those. Yeah. That's fair, that's yeah. fair. Where are people these days, where are people coming from, and where are they going to in Canada? So the top three countries, mm-hmm. I think I've got the right order, but it may be it's sort of India, Philippines, and China. Okay. Um, and then if you drop down further, you, you get another, another mix of countries. But those are the top three, and they're probably the, you know, the bulk of the, of, the, of the people coming to Canada. In terms of where they're going, that's shifted over the years. Okay. Um, so 20 years ago, the bulk serve went to Ontario. I think it was up to 45% at one point in time, right. and then you had Quebec, and then you had BC. Um, but remember I said that it's also a shared jurisdiction with the provinces. And right. so the government created a window for the provinces to sponsor immigrants okay. directly based on their uh, having a work off, offer or something like that. And so that combined with the shift in economic power from eastern Canada to western Canada led to a shift towards more immigrants going to western Canada. So it was a combination okay. of the program that allowed provinces to sponsor uh, uh, directly immigrants, still to be approved by the federal government, but they could sponsor it. And that's where immigrants land right. and they start their, their time in Canada. But we don't have or I haven't seen it or haven't analyzed it, really good data, what happens five years later in right. terms of where they relocate? Because right. people do relocate. If they, if they can't sort of succeed economically in one province, yeah, they, they will move elsewhere else. and, yeah. and pursue that. So some of that also happens. But in terms of the initial place where they choose to land, um, you know, that's shifted over time. Again, you know, a mixture of policy flexibility mm-hmm. and the economic drivers of where people want to go. Right. Just to sort of wrap things up here, what does Canada's system look like compared to other countries? Are there other countries who are similar? Are there other countries who are very different? I, I'm even going to step back a bit further oh, okay. uh, and say what makes Canada different mm. in a more fundamental sense. Excellent, excellent. Um, so Canada's an immigration-based country, mm-hmm. and there are any number of ones. You've got Australia, you've got U.S., you know, you've got South America right. as well. They're all immigration-based countries with an indigenous population. Um, what makes Canada unique, in my view, is the fact that we don't have a monolithic identity. And, of course, people complain about that, but the fact is, you know, well, we have the Aboriginal population or Indigenous population, which in the early years we tried to accommodate and use, and then it changed a bit to assimilation. Mm-hmm. But you really had the French-English dynamic, which really forced Canada to accept that it didn't have a monolithic identity, right. and we had to have a process that we would accommodate the differences and so, you know, the fact that Quebec has a different legal system, et cetera, et cetera, reflect the, that fundamental accommodation. We understood from the beginning that there, the country had to be based on some fundamental compromises that were related to identity, not just material issues, but identity. Okay. And so what that helped us is when we were looking at sort of what does integration versus assimilation mean in the 50s and 60s, the government 
made a very conscious say, we're going to do integration. We're not doing assimilation. We want to create, leave some space for the individual communities uh, to have their identities, to express their identities within the Canadian construct. And that, that, so that was the second stage of accommodation. And that happened in the context of mainly white people okay. and mainly Christians. So it wasn't very controversial. But then when you start letting in people from other countries, other religions and everything like that, that fundamental framework prevailed. And so we always understood that it was about integration. It was about preserving a space for people's identities. But again, always within that Canadian construct of laws and, 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 and values. So it was a softer form than virtually any other country. Uh, that, that is, and that sort of helped Canada sort of relatively succeed compared to other countries in terms of the kind of debates we have over immigration, over citizenship, over multiculturalism. Because there's a fundamental recognition that it's not just one size fits all. Right. That we have to have some flexibility. And it's not that we're saying anything goes. We have laws. We have yeah. fundamental values and everything like that. You have to give people some latitude to choose the pace and form of integration. Right. Um, uh, to allow them to feel like they're fully participating members of society. So that's the, more, the most fundamental difference. The other stuff... It's important, but it's more technical. Right. It's the nuts and bolts of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, if people are interested in learning more about these things, where can they find you on the internet? Um, uh, www.multiculturalmeanderings.com. <laughs> okay, fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Speed is key for Canadian shoppers. Is your business keeping up? It can with Interact Flash. It's the platform that millions of Canadians use to check out quickly and securely. Learn more at interact.ca.